Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, my friend, happy Friday. It is Friday. (laughs) It's Friday today. Uh, We are, you are in London. I'm in greater Philadelphia and the weather here is very British. It's overcast. It's been overcast for days. It's been raining and I was walking in center city, Philadelphia in like in a rain, in the rain and a car drove past me and splashed a big like puddle on me. Like I was in a commercial and I had no umbrella and I just felt like this was, uh, you know, I was, I felt like I was like, I, I was, should have been like in a car insurance commercial that I didn't buy the insurance or something. And this mm. is what happened. Mm. But if you, so, but if, the sun shall prevail. If, uh, if you had, you know, if you had five words, how would you encapsulate Philadelphia in five words? Uh, five words. It's big, small town, yeah, big, small town, fun. And the fifth one would be character. It's got a lot of character as a city. Hmm. I, it's it's you know it's like the fifth largest city in the country now. I think, and but it's sort of it's an old city. It's I, I think I said this before. The guy who wrote this book, Hidden Cities of Philadelphia, it's, it's an accretive city, it, it, layer upon layer. It doesn't. It's not certain American cities like and industries come in and redo them, and the city is just sort of like redone, you know. Or and then other cities like Boston or Charleston preserve really work at curating and preserving the old field. Where Philly, it's just sort of layer upon layer, and that's an interesting feel to it as a city it's a very and, and it, it, it does feel like a lot more manageable than new york you, you it's it's easier to get around in and stuff like that so it's 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 smaller but it's great i mean it's a great loads of culture great places to eat interesting people crazy sports fans like we went with the super we were in the super bowl a couple of years ago i was just like i put on facebook soliciting your prayers that we win <laughs> because people are gonna like god ransack the downtown no matter what like people did still destroy stuff flip cars but like at least the, I'd like them to be happy when they're doing it. Like it, it's just <laughs> like police were like greasing the 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 like lamp poles so that people couldn't climb up them. And oh, oh yeah, it's yeah. crazy. It's awesome. It's okay. awesome. Philly's great. There's a there's a a vibrancy to life in America that one one does need to respect. There is a kind of um you know enthusiasm for tribalism yeah in in a lot of aspects of american culture right i mean you see it in the politics obviously but you also see it in in the sports and um and there's there's something to be there i i guess it does go back to you know sort of de tocqueville and democracy in america and i think that he was you know basically trying to articulate the same thing in a in a kind of classic work of uh, of um political nonfiction that boy these people are just very energetic about what they do and associations are always associating and they're always in these yeah it's very yeah there's this sort of like they learn these sort of democratic skills through all these associations they form and yeah Mm. he talks about how you can't convince an american you're done talking with them that even if you disagree with them, they'll, they'll try to convince you. That, oh, you really see it. Like, you know, it's very, it's like, it's, 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 it's fascinating. But yeah. It, well, the other thing that I think is interesting about the United States right now is, is for a big country that is 
a liberal democracy, like we're so diverse in so many ways, which is like why, you know, in political debates today, everybody sort of lifts up the example of Scandinavia, which I think is a great example, especially Sweden. I mean, Sweden like is has like no, like basically no carbon footprint through renewables and nuclear power. They are just it's amazing. But, you know. They're also smaller, more homogenous countries where mm. there's a lot more shared values. It's not that they're not diverse and things like that, but mm. relative to the United States, it's just so big and so different that, you, you know, mm. you, there are just places in the country I couldn't imagine living, you know, or what, and, and, and vice versa, you know, play, there's so many people that wouldn't want to live in Philadelphia or something like that. It, it, there, it is it hard. It, it becomes harder, I think, to figure out a shared identity, mm-hmm. especially as we I, have more and more resources and ways to self-identify in in more splinter groups. I, I think that's right. And it's probably it's a subtlety. Well, it's more than a subtlety, but it's a dimension that is often lost when we kind of, you know, do comparisons around the world of, you know, oh, they do that over there. Well, yeah. Well, why can't we do that here? Um, you know, I think of, you know, having lived in China and, and one of the just dominant truths of, uh, of China is it's kind of, you know, and yeah, there is regional variation around language and stuff, but it's still kind of like 90% Han Chinese, like one broad ethnic grouping, sort of 1.1 billion out of 1.4. And so growing up in that environment where everybody looks like me, um, it, it, it both it reinforces a sense of us and also reinforces a sense of them. Um, and, and, and it becomes a kind of important fact around what, what is politically possible, right? You know, is, and so I, I, that's a giant tangent. We don't need to explore it here. But, you know, is like a one-party state more viable where there is such a strong homogeneity in just the, uh, the, the ethnic identity of, of, of the state? You know, a, another thought that comes to mind is, uh, I guess, about a year or two ago being in Estonia, and I was taking a delegation of uh, Middle Eastern government officials um, to the capital talent to meet with various executives. And, and Estonia is like one of the most digital societies on earth. Um, you mean, wrote about this. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can vote by like plugging in your ID card into your laptop and and clicking who you're going to vote I'm for. I'm so into that. Yeah, it sounds so, so much more hackable, it, but yeah, yeah, well, well, it, it sounds great though and so they're at the forefront of like how do we secure our public networks through the blockchain and stuff like this but they're really digitally intensive and you know their story is well we had to be because in kind of like post-soviet era we're basically you know completely starved of wealth and 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 there were just no capital to do anything any other way other than this way you know we couldn't we couldn't afford to open government service offices in all the towns in this big country of only 1.5 million people. So we had to do it digitally and blah, blah, blah. But the other thing that you recognize is that there is just profound homogeneity in that society. And and is that kind of a precondition to being able to trust the system? Um, is that an enabler in a way that, um, you know, trust maybe just doesn't come as easily in in more complicated demographic spaces. Oh, I, I, uh, I there's, there's, uh, there's research there. on this. Yeah, there's research. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. I think this study where they've done on these Italian townships and, you know, I Italy's, can't remember what we talked about two weeks ago. Exactly. Neither do I. Very, <laughs> like, this, but I remember we, you know, there's this study and I heard it on Freakonomics where Italy notoriously has, you know, there's government corruption problems and yet there are certain townships, you know, certain localities that, have very 
you know, the governments perform very well and, and are not corrupt and efficient. And they found that where there was high social trust, that the government performed a lot better. But also one of the things they found was that diversity is a tension. It, you know, it causes tension with social trust because it's harder to get along with people that don't make the same assumptions. You know, it's funny because it, I the first Democratic debate, the presidential debate is, is next week. And I, I thought if I was a moderator, I'd almost want to say, all right, that's a great idea, but I'm dinging you because that could never make it with 60 votes in the Senate. And the odds are the Democrats are not going to take 60 seats. So, you know, you, you can't, the bold, these bold legislative ideas, there's never going to get through. And so, you, you know, the, I think of the two big P legislative things that have happened in the past two administrations, Obamacare, the healthcare reform, which got through in a technicality and reconciliation where, you know, you, you through certain budgetary shifting, it's you don't need the 60 vote majority for cloister in the Senate. And the same thing, I think, with the tax cut, uh, I think it was a similar thing where so basically the idea that you would get an actual piece of legislation passed through the Senate with 60 votes. It's like it's almost inconceivable. Anything significant. Hmm. So there you go. There's that's a slightly cynical. I'm trying, that's slightly cynical without becoming a cynic. I'm not a cynic, but but I do think that that aspect of of American government right now is is challenged. I mean, it they don't even pass budgets. They just do continuing right. resolutions. This the right. one thing in the constitutional structure that that basic thing that the Congress should do pass budgets. We can't do it. it it's interesting because you know I so I live uh, grew up and now live in parliamentary democracies. Where, um, you know, if you kind of if you get a majority in one house, then you can do what you want to do, and 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 so you get, and the people can evaluate it, like okay, yeah, they did this stuff. That's right. LA, that's right. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's what they were doing. Okay, now yeah, we like that, or no, we don't like that. Um, and the American system, of course, is one where you know it's you you, you need to get you need to have you know pretty dominant performance in in several different elections kind of you know in over a two year period in order to be able to have the the legislative authority to just try what you want to do um and I, you know, I've had so I've got a, a buddy in in Montreal, and he's sort of a you know does a lot. I wouldn't say an expert, although he he is an expert in U.S. politics, but he's more you know just intensely curious about. It. He's worked on multiple campaigns for you know parties on both sides of the aisle, and he takes busloads of his students down from Montreal to work on campaigns. And he's just he's just in love with uh, American politics and American history, and, and and he's a strong advocate of it. He would say like, yeah, no, I know that you. You know, everybody poo-poos the gridlock and blah, 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 blah. But actually, that's the genius of the system, that that this kind of strong uh, antipathy and anxiety about government action and the system is designed to make it really hard to, yeah, to, and, you know, to dramatically change the rules of how we are governed. And, and, and that's how it was designed to be. So, I, I mean, I, I do hear the arguments of both sides of the aisle, but one does sense that – you know that we live in a moment uh, where, in a lot of domains, it seems that that time is precious, that there's an urgency, and a lot of uh, our politics, and not just in the U.S., but maybe most starkly in the U.S., is kind of designed around the assumption that um, that 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 time is a kind of infinite resource. Um, and, and, and that may be far too strong an assumption for the world we live in now. And it's also kind of designed around an assumption that if we just talk at each other long enough, then we're going to come to some kind of 
either consensus or compromise. And it seems that that is too strong an assumption as well. And I, and I think it's it's those two things put together that lead a lot of us to kind of wring our hands about our, our, our political systems. You know, I, Andrew Sullivan, who's, you know, was a Thatcherite kind of conservative, gay, Catholic, you know, was, you know, writes prolific writers all over the commentary, but he's, he finds himself kind of in the American center, voted for Obama, even though he used to sort of self, I mean, he still identifies as a conservative small C, but now if you're a conservative small C, you find yourself often in the center, sometimes slightly center left. But he wrote this book recently about the conservative mindset or something a couple of years ago. And he was saying that part of what American government, the constitutional system does is it's resistant to ideology, you know, that like to, to quick ideological turns. And, and I think you could argue that's a strength of it. And the other thing I quote you often on this to you, to you and to others in uh, your book, the age of discovery, you talk about how you ought to, we ought to just sort of let the social media kind of in the, in the technology revolution kind of kind of take its course and play itself out a bit before we react to regulate and things like that. And, and that, I'm thankful that we're not efficient on that regard because, you know, with things in the election and privacy things, everybody now, you know, everybody, there's this public opinion kind of souring slightly on, so on big information companies. And I'm thinking, yeah, th I don't want the Congress to act quickly on this because most of them don't know enough, but most of them just don't know. I mean, I remember one of the senators when Zuckerberg was like, how do you provide all these services for free? And Zuckerberg's like, we sell ads. <laughs> and like, you know, so, so the idea that like, sometimes I like the gridlock. I, I think I'm with your friend. And other times I think, you know, uh, at other times I think, gosh, you know, I'd like more efficiency. But let's, you know. uh, so let's maybe pivot from there to um, engaging on um, some of the questions that I had posed in, um, wasn't a map, it was my first field notes. That I put up. Yeah, I love this too. Did I, you like that I idea this to you the of... other day? I, yeah, you kind of like, look, I'm just. I'm, Here are I'm some not, raw it's... thoughts. What do you guys think? Help me. Help yeah, me I like. I told you, I, I liked it a lot. I thought, you know, it's because I, I had sent I had sent you something a couple days ago about our podcast, a, a quote from Rob Bell, who's this American spiritual speaker and you know friend of Oprah and stuff. And somebody said, Rob, we don't we don't come to hear you talk. To get answers, we come to watch you explore. You're exploring out loud and in public, and we want to explore with you. And I thought I, that's one of the things I like about our conversations. It's kind of we're exploring out loud, and and I I love this the way you wrote in this field notes because you were sort of you you were you were not giving us a finished product. You were sort of giving us your thought development on paper, which mm. I found helpful and engaging. Mm. It was a different and. Mm. A different sort of writing style from what you often send out. Yeah, maybe I liked it. looser and so kind of more obvious places to hook into it and, and, and build upon it. And, you know, so you think people tune in and listen to sort of, you know, sort of watch us explore together. I, I wonder if it's more like to watch us careen into the sides and smash into the <laughs> well, walls. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like, think oh, that's this, true this chaos is amazing. It's, just, it's so entertaining. Yeah, it's slightly chaos. Watch these I mean, people get like... lost in the maze of their own mind palaces. <laughs> but, well, yeah. But, you know, it is interesting. I, uh, I mean, I think if there were more conversations that I knew of at a local pub or coffee shop like we're having, I would I would go there. You know, I mean, I, I would not again. I don't think like uh, we're the only game in town. I mean, there are interdisciplinary people that like to connect things and big ideas to the world and things like that. It's not that I think that but it's a tribe that can be hard to find. I mean, it, it, it can be hard to find locally. 
you know, just a group of people that, that can connect in that way. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, it's a, a we're, I think for some people, we're probably some kind of proxy like that. Yeah. But, um, you know, because we're talking about sort of gridlock. And I feel that, um, you know, those kind of three questions or, or topics that I that I threw up, they all they all relate in a meta way to this question of sort of, you know, how do what do we do when we're stuck? And how do we how do we kind of get unstuck and find ways to, to move? You know, it's, sometimes it's about because if we don't know what the solution is, if we don't know the way forward, then, you know, are we are we hopeless in the face of these challenges or are there ways to nonetheless move usefully and, and move meaningfully, even if we are in, in some in some way stuck? And, and and I felt like the three topics in in those field notes kind of related to that. I, you know, one is this question of uh, so where are the artists? Right? Are there are there new people that we can bring into what we're stuck with that can kind of create new new paths, new pathways of action? Um, and the second one, being, and you, this came about. You were sitting in a room, right, with people. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So it was. Um, well, you you actually referenced the base camp thing. That was actually that question was from the base camp it, thing it, that we it, did it, in Toronto. It right? was, and so for me, it was a kind of you know connecting dots in in my own life that I was in this meeting of people. Uh, well, first of all, I was at a conference um, on uh, on what's called the circular economy. It's sort of thinking, you know, what what's beyond concepts of recycling and sustainability, and it's actually around you know how do we how do we design our economic systems to be sustainable by design. And it was a, a pretty powerful room of, of people, but a large conference. And, and it was the CEO of Condé Nast who was there, this guy named Wolfgang Blau. And, and, and he asked that question. He's like, where are the artists? We need artists uh, in, in public discourse to help crystallize the longing that people feel and, 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 and to turn what are otherwise kind of diffuse anxieties and feelings and, 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 and needs uh, of of kind of the public moment into more concrete ideas and images and and movements that um, that we can all get behind and and as soon as he said that I, I was careened back to you know we had a whole table of artists at uh, at Toronto who you know basically came out of their conversation with the idea that yeah exactly what we need to do is somehow create a movement where. Um, you know the the outcome of which is to change how society thinks about artists, so that whenever there's a significant conversation that affects society, there's you know somebody looking around for where is the artist at the table because we need them to help us. You know, one crystallize some of the the latent needs of the moment that we're in, but I think also two to kind of be the mirror back to ourselves because I think that's something powerful that the arts do is they 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 show us our fixations and they show us our blind spots they you know especially contemporary art right i mean it's 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 a representation of the now and once somebody represents it then we can kind of step back and walk around and like yeah that's crazy or that's beautiful it makes it makes the the present moment something tangible that we can that the rest of us can work with yeah and i think of you know i remember back jerry seinfeld is on howard stern now and again and they're good friends and he was asking stern was asking him about comedians you know in cars drinking coffee and he said how'd you, how'd you come up with the idea and he said you know mccullough you know the medium is the message you know he said you know i was looking <laughs> at my kids 
and everything is on smaller screens. So I thought, well, what kind of show would be on a small screen? All right. How about short, shorter in, in format and lots of faces and talking and short. Like, like he thought of the whole development of the show, looking at his kids and what they were doing. And, and the medium is the message kind of thing. And I think mm. we're so connected to the medium now, you know, to, to these shared kind of mediums. And, and what does that do? You know, I, and I think artists are generally much more reflective about how medium and representation mm. shapes reality. And I think that that, you know, that is, it, it, I even think of like, you know, Conan O'Brien was Howard Stern's favorite guest he revealed in his book his best mm. interview ever did mm. and Cohen, he had conan o'brien back on the show to talk about that and he, they talked about how just this medium like what you and i are doing right now right in this podcast mm. there wasn't a medium like this to just for two people that were smart and kind of funny like stern and and conan o'brien to to have this kind of long form 80 minute wandering insightful interesting funny mm. conversation mm. you couldn't do that in terrestrial just, radio you right, couldn't right. do it like so there are these these mediums that often and I, I think you're right we often don't think I think sometimes we 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 too in, we're too instrumental in the way we think about hmm. the medium hmm. and and not hmm. thinking about how how it's shaping reality as it represents it hmm. and I think that's you know maybe that's why we you know we kind of crowded the arts out of um you know serious business of life um because it's not seen as instrumental. I, I, so, you know, this, so th this kind of thread um, got a lot of like reader reaction. And, uh, and one of the people who wrote back to me, I mean, I, we, we got, we got like some, some missives, some real rants came back, like and some were pretty, <laughs> pretty long form, but one, one was this, this artist, um, pretty significant artist. I know quite well. And um, wrote, uh, so, you know, and obviously, you know, cares a lot about the arts as an artist, but, but you know, he wrote that, uh, I'm quoting him here, these profound human expressions of what it means to be truly alive are taken as frills nowadays and are not counted nor as they valued in, for example, modern school curricula. Um, and their diminishing role, and in some cases, extinction in many jurisdictions of society, enrages me and deprive students of the chance to be fully rounded human beings. I thought, hmm, facts and data are good, but they are only part of the answer. Uh, we've, we've, we've sat in too many meetings where nothing new is ever postulated because there is nothing that acts as a catalyst to move minds outside of the quote-unquote the box. And so round and round we go. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, I mean, the things aren't meaningful. And, you know, there there's... Alistair McIntyre, right? The <laughs> <philosopher> <laughs> famously said, before I ask, what must I do? I must ask, of what story am I a part? And, you know, that hmm. oftentimes he thought like ethical, the way we teach ethics and say college classes are like, it's like moral calculus. Well, you X plus Y equals, you know, then, okay, you save the baby or don't save the baby, right? <laughs> like, you know, it's like the quadratic equation hmm. as opposed to thinking about what story am I in? What do I think is the true, the good, and the beautiful? And how do I, how do I live in accordance with, with that? kind of reality i think yeah that it's it's the arts it's 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 in representing the beautiful and, and how we tell our stories and things like that that we we find right like what what data sets and things like that mean like what what who, you know how does that shape who we are and, and and what we want to be so that's really interesting because that was another part of the of the field note right we talked about you know what are what are the limits and the possibilities of of storytelling and 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 the reason that i asked that question is is you know and and this seems to happen in every meeting nowadays. Um, this word narrative gets used all the time. 
and it's 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 become such a I, I think it's become a word that helps like my hypothesis is because there's a sense that it kind of helps us find some sticky footing in an otherwise slippery moment where it seems that that you know you can tell any story you want and and so what's real it's like anything you want is real and it's just total chaos but the narrative the kind of the consistent story then becomes something more stable that people can hold on and get behind and it also so it becomes a kind of defense mechanism against the maelstrom of chaos but it also becomes the solution the tool of how do we get anything done how do we get anybody behind us in this maelstrom? We need a narrative. Yeah, yeah. We need I, a story to kind of like, organize the facts. So I think that the story is like, like who's the guy that wrote Sapiens? Uvel uh, Harari. Harari. Is it Harari. Harari? Harari. Harari, yeah. I mean, he talks about one of the most powerful things about human being is the ability to tell stories and, and make meaning that way. And I think that there is something instinctive that we do that way. But I think when we're too self-reflective, like when I hear in the commentary, oh, well, who's controlling the narrative? Yeah. I, mean, I just hear bullshit, or, or you know, it's like it's like after the after the political debates. Like, well, all right, let's go to the spin room, which is where there's spin. And spin is meaning bullshit, right? All right, what's our spin on it? Right. What's be, your so, bullshit story going to be? Yeah, and so so I think sometimes the word narrative is 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 almost the opposite of the of of the powerful sort of myth making storytelling that we're talking about like hmm. it becomes this reductive sort of all right, all right all right how do we sort of it becomes like pitching you know hmm. like sales pitch yeah right in the worst sense it becomes a sales pitch so but it's interesting so there was a lot of like almost like contradictory or contesting sort of reader response to to those threads i was writing i mean one person wrote to me i love the word narrative and while i respect your critique Chris, that's my critique. Um, we need stories. If I can't hear your story and you can't hear mine, then I don't know you and you don't know me. If we don't know each other, are we going to create a story together? I thought, hmm. So stories are part of how we understand ourselves and each other. And, and I, that does seem true. And I guess it's Harari's point as well, that it's kind of an indispensable just part of our sense making of reality and of each other that we exchange these stories, but it. I, but then you know you talk about the bullshit in the spin room, and I guess what we really need to do if we're going to use this word all the time in society now, then maybe we need to unpack it a bit and recognize that you know narrative storytelling is is a process, and you know at the beginning there's a quite creative and and porous process around you know figuring out the narrative and you're still doing a lot of listening there and learning but then kind of towards the other end it's just sort of pure proselytizing right here's our story we're sticking to it no deviation from the story because that's just going to derail us or derail public attention and we don't want that so just stick on the message and at that point, the story is no longer, no longer has any role in 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 a kind of what do I want to say? It, at that point, there's no longer a kind of creative mutation aspect to it, a learning aspect. It is just pure. It's it's almost a it's almost a, a tool by which we shut down conversation and we shut yeah. down possibilities. And and so I think that as we use this word more and more, we have to kind of recognize that there is this journey of narrative that takes us from, on, on one end, listening and hearing each other, to the other end, um, 
finish it for me. Like it's like like yeah, like a yeah, deafness I, I think, to each other. Yeah, I think I think you know Thomas Merton, the great twentieth century or spiritual thinkers. You know, guy became a monk, Trappist monk, amazing thinker. He said he talks about the difference between seeing yourself and being yourself. And he says, you know, when we're seeing ourselves, we're projecting. You know, I'm thinking about how am I coming across in this interview or at this party or at, in this social interaction, and often we're we're sort of detached from who we really are because we're we're crafting who we want people to see us as mm-hmm. versus when we we're being ourselves, right? We're, we're just very, we're, we're a lot closer to who we are. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not trying to package it up and round out all the heart, all the edges and things like that. And I think that that, you know, very often I think it, it that seeing ourselves is often, you know, it's our shadow self. It's, it, it's our insecure self. It's our, it's our pitch projected self versus, you know, when we feel really secure and, and, and able to actually be our, you know, to be, to, to act from a place that's, that's genuine. And I think the same, I, I mean, I think that his words there have helped me immensely in my life. And I think there's a parallel with story. I think there, that there's, there, that, that when we're, it's at a meaningful level, it, it, it's less self-reflective about how it's being heard or told. You know, it's, it's, it's the difference in a be, being the story or seeing the story, sort of, you know, pitching the story or try to, or trying to use the story to control reality as opposed to the story being, helping us indwell and live in reality. So that's very interesting because I think it relates to like this idea of the story helping us to dwell in reality. So um, one uh, one person of let's call it our learning community <laughs> got back to me and and said I thought it was really intriguing that that perhaps what we what we need perhaps what is needed when we talk about the need for narratives and new narratives is actually new metaphors. And yeah, that a metaphor is a powerful thing. T.S. Eliot said after he sort of rejected philosophy, you know, after he basically earned a PhD at Harvard, then didn't defend his dissertation. He said the problem with philosophers is they don't understand the metaphors they use. Hmm. He's like a poet would never use a metaphor without understanding it. <laughs> 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 That's so I, great. And I thought it was really so. And he went on to say, no, 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 no. But you know, when we use metaphor, we're we're touching upon this mythic aspect of ourselves, which hungers for intelligibility and meaningfulness. And I don't know exactly. That feels like it's like over my head or 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 above my pay grade. But but <laughs> but where my mind goes to when I think about what would happen if we kind of shift the language from narrative to metaphor, is is metaphor occurs to me as a kind of as a more open form of story, right? As a kind of frame that isn't like it isn't total vapor. Like there is a substance to it. There is a shape to it, but it's not a hard-edged thing that only this fits into the box of the story we're telling. Metaphor, to me, suggests that I can, I can bring my own stories and my own examples and my own identity and circumstances to it and make sense of it for myself and also help you to make sense of it. And so it kind of serves this mutual understanding each other aspect without demanding that we... Um, that we kind of keep every word, every sentence of that story fixed. So it's a kind of, it, it's more like um, I was in a, a wonderful meeting with um, a, a woman yesterday and we we're talking about systemic change and how they're creating, how they're trying to sort of catalyze systemic change in, in, in the finance industry. And, and she talked about her role, or the role of her organization as 
as holding the frame and not like like squeezing it tightly that this is the only but just kind of holding a frame holding a story holding an agenda rather than owning an agenda and the sense of creating some meaningfulness and some mutual understanding and at the same time um allowing for a kind of openness and i yeah, i feel like yeah. what i really need is a is a concrete example here but but i've got a hunch that that, that um and he's on to something there, that the shift from narrative to metaphor could be a really helpful one. It's interesting. Hans Frey, who was a theologian at Yale University, and, I mean, was a significant kind of thinker in, in a lot of academic circles, both theologically and, and to some extent philosophically. But I remember hearing him in a lecture say once that, that for uh, the Christian tradition, the point of the doctrines is the story, not the other way around. And what he's saying is that, that, that there's the story of, 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 of God, Israel, Jesus, the cosmos, that's being swept in it. And, and when, when thinkers have engaged in sort of philosophical and theological speculation and things like this, it's for the purpose of finding out what the story means in this new time and place. It's not to re- reduce this, replace the story. It's not to control it. It's to, it's to enable it to sort of keep being a living story. And I thought that is very, is very, is, is there's something to that. And McIntyre also has written about this, how traditions that are living are able to retell their story and, and reinterpret it in light of new realities. And traditions that die are ones that can't do that, right? They can't, hmm. they, they have to, they can't be porous and they, they, they can't have semi-permeable membranes because if too much of reality that, that's outside the story gets in them, it implodes them, you know? And I think that's, that's you know, what is, uh, what is uh, Jonathan Haidt say? Morality binds and it blinds. Hmm. You know, it binds hmm. people together hmm. and it blinds you to other perspectives. So, and that's helpful evolutionarily, right? Because you've got to, you need cohesion. But the, 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 the challenges for that binding thing to not be totally blinding, that you're able to hmm. sort of, uh, and, and you can't sort of, Right. There is this balancing act, isn't there? It is similar to the conversation we had about about AI that, you know, if there's if there's just a constant sort of invasion of alternative ideas, then does it just become chaos? And so what is the balance between the kind of the story that is so inflexible that it is fragile and the story that is so amorphous that it doesn't help us? To, to make yeah. sense of, yeah. of the chaos. And and then and, and so like that's us just sort of almost thinking in a very abstract intellectual way. And then on the other hand you have like, another reader who wrote to me and, and and said like, you know, I I, I I share the discomfort around the overuse of narrative and, and it does seem rather shallow and kind of the spin room thing. But and this is somebody who knows what he's talking about and knows what she's talking about. Um but quote, narratives win elections. <laughs> And in a world where Twitter soundbite media dominates, a narrative need not be much more than a group of well-aligned and well-prosecuted slogans. And the most effective yeah. slogans tend to tap into human fears, not hopes. And, and and so I think that is kind of part of the, like part of the one of the big challenges. And you know, I, stories can be weapons. Stories can be weaponized. Yeah. Stories can be weaponized, and also um, the weapons are effective, right? And so there is this, I think, um, terrible fear. And you see it, you see it in the kind of you know hand wringing that you know maybe Democratic candidates do in the U.S. when they're thinking about how to you know if we want to win the next election, what's the right approach to take? Because you have the sense that maybe it's bad for society, maybe it's bad for democracy to kind of oversimplify things into slogans and just keep hitting them and and just try to win 
with our version of the truth. Maybe it is bad, but it's what works. And 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 we've got to do what works because we can't be naive about the world that that we live in. And I think you see you see a lot of that tension. I I mean, I saw it again going back to the meeting that inspired me to kind of put out these field notes. You know, I saw it in the kind of classic tension you see in the meeting between the like the value of thought and action. And you know, I'm the ideas guy in the room. I'm I'm just curious yeah. and watching it and and I believe and it's probably an irrational belief, but I have a real belief that just just thinking about, you know, how do we frame this and how do we understand and 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 how is, you know, how is sort of grown-up corporate Europe and corporate America thinking about the economy now? And how is that whole framing different from how uh, indigenous cultures do? And if we could kind of understand those differences and create some kind of dialogue between them, and that would be enriching and interesting and open up new possibilities. I, I completely agree. This yeah, is that, like that's Heisenberg, me, right? The other end of this, this is stuff. the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? That, 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 that you by change, just observing phenomena changes the phenomena. I think that's true, and I think that just understanding something changes, like. The idea and the formulation of it, the understanding changes the world we live in. So you and I are on that page, right? Yeah, so very much. You get diverse people <laughs> around a table with a big problem, and you know, half of the room is going to be so frustrated with us and like, oh, you know, you know, expletive. There go Chris and Scott again, you know, and it's just like their words are no more helpful than air. They're just, they're just sucking air together. Meanwhile, the world is burning or, you know, meanwhile, you know, we've got to turn around this crisis in whatever it is, right? The, the, the action-oriented people in the room have very little patience for, um, you know, introspective reflection and thinking about, you know, how should we be thinking differently about things that the imperative to do is, is so strong. And, and I think it's pretty uncontested in a lot of those contexts. I mean, somebody, you know, especially in the position of authority says, right, you know, uh, we can't just sit here. We've got to do something. Everyone thinks, oh, yeah, that, that, that's right. We need to be doing something. I, I, I can't think of ever being in a room where somebody has kind of thumped the table and said, we can't just do something. We have to sit here. And yet I want to believe that it's not that simple, that, that like you say, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, that there is, there is, there has to be, right, a synthesis of ideas and action. And, and and that was kind of what I was exploring in my letter. I mean, if you think kind of long term and things like actions too are just air. Right? So someone does something, but what you know? I mean, time and space and scale are so giant. I mean, the doing of any one thing just can be sort of lost. It doesn't have any permanence to it. And and sometimes it seems that ideas are actually much more permanent than actions. If they uh, yeah, if well, they enter the yeah. language, if they enter the culture, if they enter the society, then they they continue to inform and shape action and action. And I mean, action we're still playing out Plato versus Aristotle in some ways in contemporary political discourse. Like, like that that's still a live debate. I mean, it, it, it doesn't always look the same, but sort of you know it. it how much can we have a state sort of more top down kind of system versus one that's a little more bottom up and flatter? I mean, that, these are this, these are you know uh, you know fifth century BC kind of arguments <laughs> that are still playing out. There, there's really interesting. There is this exchange in the Christian century in the 1930s between. H. Richard Niebuhr and Reinhold Niebuhr, who were brothers, who were two prominent Christian public intellectuals. I mean, they were, and it was over hmm. whether America, the United States, should get involved in in China, like it, because Japan had just, uh, 
you know, made excursions into China. And, and Reinhold Niebuhr was very much the activist. We need to get involved. We need to, uh, you know, do something. And H. Richard Niebuhr's response to his brother was called The Grace of Doing Nothing. Hmm. And in the conclusion, hmm. he says, the inactivity which he's talking about is not the inactivity of those who call evil good. It's the inaction of those who do, who do not judge their neighbors because they cannot fool themselves into a sense of superior righteousness. It is not the inactivity of a resigned patience, but of a patience that is full of hope and is based on faith. It is not the activity of the non-combatant, for it knows that there are no non-combatants, that everyone is involved, that China is being crucified, though the term is very inaccurate, by our sins and those of, of the whole world. It is not the inactivity of the merciless, for works of mercy must be performed, though they are only pallets to ease present pain, while the process of healing depends on deeper, more actual and urgent forces. And I love huh. the whole essay is beautiful, huh. but, but this sort of deliberate inactivity, it's not a sort of right. inactivity of sloth or resignation, right. but it's it's. It's, it requires a kind of imaginative patience. And, and, uh, and I right. think there's, we could use more of that very often, so, so, not less. So where my mind goes listening to that, and I think this is a very productive. So what is the, what is the way to complicate the binary of ideas and action, ideas versus action? And I think, I, I think you can do it both. In, in, you can interrogate both of those. But you know, one way, it seems, is, well, what counts as an action? And to recognize that, you know, sitting and thinking, right, us reflecting, um, reading, you know, listening, questioning, these are all also actions. But we, yeah, we, yes, we, we, yes. We, 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 I guess somehow, and it, it probably is, you know, uh, you know, economic thinking permeating into all other aspects of, of life. There's a sense that if it, if it isn't counted and measured in a kind of, quantitative value framework somewhere then it doesn't count as action and and so i think that it it is you know another example of the kind of measurement fetish that we've we've narrowed down our understanding of what makes something an action that we've 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 brought our measurement fetish into it and and i mean i i remember a few months ago in one of my most ambitious talks i tried to talk about and i think we maybe skimmed it briefly at some point, but I tried to talk about the history of human consciousness. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can imagine a time sort of, you know, at, at the dawn of human consciousness where, you know, thinking and acting were both just aspects of being. And I think that, I think that we've, you know, everything that we've done since then has given us so many ways to kind of compartmentalize being into what look and feel to our modern minds as discrete categories. Um, but, but maybe, yeah, I think part of the way, yeah, now, now I feel like I'm, I, mean, I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche says somewhere, he says, you know, some pre-Socratic comes up with the mind body problem, right? And now it's a problem. And now yeah. none of us can get through a week without thinking about this mind body, part the duality, but, <laughs> but he's like, it's not that there's not a duality or something, but like, it's not, why is it a problem? Right. So somebody frames it as a problem and that, then it's now it's with us as, yeah. as a problem. Uh, uh, you know? There are these two categories and I can't straddle them both. And so I'm left with some kind of choice that I don't want to make. Yeah. I'm just skimming, you know, some of the replies that I have. I, I've never had so many replies to uh, a letter, by the way, I suppose in part because I asked for it. Um, but, um, you know, this, this, this dichotomy and, you know, I think no thoughtful person wants to accept the dichotomy. 
between thinking and doing, right? I, I think that we, we, we want to figure out a way of making sense of our intuition that they are both aspects of our being, uh, of our doing, um, yeah, hmm. I, I I agree. Hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah even even when you this is the dialectical nature of it, right? Hmm. Even when you bracket it out for the purpose of 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 analyzing it or thinking about it, you realize quickly that that the bracketing out is often artificial. And so, if I can just so one of the give me one. I got to pull a book off my shelf for this. Hold on a second. So so one of our readers, listeners, um, he recently came up with a book, and I'm going to give him a, a brief plug for it. This is Robert Poynton. Of course. Um, and it's called Pause. It's a, it's a series of books um, by a company called Do, the Do Book Company, and they've got a whole bunch of them. And this one is – so some of them are like Do Disrupt and Do Birth and Do Breathe and Do Purpose and Do Beekeeping. Um, and Robert wrote the latest one in their series called Do Pause, and the subtitle is – you are not a to-do list. Um, mm. But what is really – so how do we complicate the binary? What, what blew my mind is he wrote back to me, you know, this distinction between thinking and acting. And, and we just talked about how, you know, not all thinking is passive. But he makes the point in, in this book that not all doing is action. And the point that we do, we do a lot of we, – we can be busy – and actually not be taking significant action. Yeah. And, and and I think that is massively true. I mean, I think we all have personal experiences of just busying ourselves, filling time with with doing stuff. But but if if, if yeah, we yeah, not if, being able to say what it is, yeah, you well, did, like well, not being able to give a meaningful account of well, what did I just I just spent all this time. What did I do? And and I guess it's about saying like, you know, should should we kind of raise the status of what counts as an action to 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 embody some sense of meaningfulness and significance? And if yeah. yes, then there's a lot of doings that are hopelessly inactive. And I, I can think of, you know, God, I can think of so many examples from from the business world where, oh, okay, big crisis, or, or now it's digital transformation, right? So there's all this change happening in the world, and we've got to change too. We've got to have our response. And so you... You bring in a consulting firm and you hold a bunch of meetings and consultations and even you invest in some technology and, you, and, and you're doing all sorts of stuff. And, and so you look around yourself and you say, yeah, we're responding to these changes. Um, and, and, and then, you know, the company goes bankrupt. <laughs> and, what, and what one, you know, what someone impassively looking at it would, would say is they, they were busying themselves and, and they mistook being busy for doing something significant. Yeah. They they mistook yeah. being busy for responding. Yeah, well, it's I think it's a way to manage anxiety. I often mm. think that when somebody is in great pain and people often try to give them answers rather than just be present, it's because the person who is suffering in front of them, they're, the person suffering makes the person that's in front of them anxious. Like so so you try to sort of give an explanation or an answer mm. to manage your own anxiety about their suffering, mm. yeah. <laughs> you know, which, is, which is sort of like the least empathetic thing you can do. But like, <laughs> but it's a, it's a natural way to sort of when we're chronically anxious, it, we often wind up doing stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that that's that's the other side of this whole debate is that that we need to insert a distinction between action and activity. Um, and I think if we if we did that, then we would start to recognize you know, the, the closeness between significant thought and significant action is probably, you know, they are far more tightly connected 
than the way that we typically throw this dichotomy out when we're in a meeting, you know, or when we're in some kind of public discourse and we say, you know, less talk, more action, you know, and, and yeah. one almost wants to say like, uh, you know, that's interesting, but, you know, do we understand the difference between busyness and action? And if we don't, then we need more talk. Yeah. Because that's really what is meaningful talk here. We all realize that there's a big, you know, we all realize the world is burning. And we got to do something. But do we understand the distinction between busyness and action? And if we don't, then, you know, running out of here is, you know, and, and, and picking up a pail is not necessarily going to help. We, yeah. we need to... We need to somehow bring the power of this heavy sort of wet matter computer brain thing into uh, into our activity. Hmm. My friend, this has been meaningful. I think I think we we've we've been in the, on the border of thought, idea, and action here. This is good. <laughs> like we're navigating the border. No, we're just keeping busy. That's let's be honest. Yeah, that, let's well, be honest. I, yeah. yeah, we're like what what, what do I do with what do I do with an hour? Give Scott a call and. Just you know, exactly. Bounce off, it. bounce off the walls a little bit, and yeah. No, thank you. It's uh, it's. I mean, I I get so much energy out of out of our conversations, and me too. And so me that's too. that's interesting, right? That it is possible to 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 gain energy by yes. by by working in ideas and 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 talking yeah. about ideas, and 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 that it can be you know transformative to us just in our kind of personal being without yeah quote unquote doing so that's that's my justification for for our our habit of talking at each other <laughs> i love it i love it it's fun and may our listeners uh, spend a little more time i hope being themselves and seeing themselves listeners and this week contributors it was i mean i i yeah. so many powerful sort of provocations from from what people wrote in so we'll, let's do more of that absolutely thank you my friend take it easy thanks for listening to the atlas project we'd love to hear your feedback drop us a line or send us a message on facebook if you really like what we're doing please rate us on itunes and write a review it helps so much as we're just getting off the ground thanks for listening and facing the new world with us